0: You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. Well, it's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 2, or you can grab a Bible that's on the ground there next to you, or you can take your device. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You can just Google ESV Bible, and you'll find us there in Hebrews chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 10, and as you're heading there, I just want to remind you that we are uh, meeting next Sunday. It is Christmas, and we'll have one service at 10 a.m., and it's the perfect time to gather and to worship Jesus. We're, uh, we're not taking the Sunday off. Uh, it seems like one of the best Sundays we could ever gather to worship Jesus is on His birthday, so I encourage you to gather together. If you're in town, let's, let's worship together that morning. And we're going to keep looking to Jesus. And you can tell from Hebrews, the little subtitle there of the series is we think the book of Hebrews, if you could sum it up, really is about looking to Christ. And no matter what you're facing or what you're in or what you're going to encounter, wherever we are, we look to Jesus and and I think today Hebrews chapter 2 has some of the most immensely encouraging and helpful verses that I turn to often for myself, that I, that I often say to others to encourage and counseling. And so I, I hope that you find these verses to be incredibly encouraging to you. And as we do every week, uh, if you're able, let's stand together in honor of reading of the Word of God. And we'll begin in verse 10. And the Holy Spirit tells us, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now. As we look at your word, would you send the the Holy Spirit to work among us and to drive this word into our hearts and to open our eyes and open our minds that we may hear and see and behold you, Father. May we see your Son, Our great Savior, may we worship and adore, magnify him this morning. So help us now, King Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think one of the best songs that we sing with our kids right now um, when we're putting them to bed is often, Jesus Loves Me. And it's a great song not only to sing to kids, but to remind yourself of as an adult that Jesus really does love me. And This I know, because the Bible tells me so, right? What I love about this song is that the song is also present tense. It doesn't say, we don't sing, Jesus loved me, which is true. The Bible says it, past tense, Galatians 2.20, he loved me and gave himself for me. But it's also present tense in Revelation 1 that he loves us and frees us from our sins. And so when we sing, Jesus loves me, we are reminding ourselves the present reality that Christ really does love me right now. From heaven, his love is pouring down from us. And I love that because we often forget about the present ministry and the present love of Christ. And what we see in Hebrews chapter 2 is, I think, we could make another song out of it. It's Jesus helps me, this I know. And in and, and the gospel, in Jesus' death and in his resurrection for us, he helps us in a thousand ways. And in the past There on Calvary, there at Golgotha, and in the present, right now from heaven, and in the future, and in the new earth. And this passage really has all three. And so I want you to see, first of all, in verse 10, look at what we see. This is the future gift and the future help that God gives to his people. Look at verse 10, Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting, it was appropriate, it was right, it was true, of course, that's what that phrase means, that he, this is the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory. Do you see just right there already God's future goal and prize for you in the gospel? What God set out to do for you. It wasn't to show the world what a great teacher Jesus is. But she is a great teacher. It it, it wasn't just to show the world how to live moral lives. Look at Jesus. This is how we should all try to live. That, That wasn't God's ultimate goal in the gospel. What is it? And bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Heaven was the prize. Eternity with God is the reward. God himself being in glory with him to redeem Jews and Gentiles and and Greeks and Romans and Guatemalans and Ethiopians, men and women from all over the world. God is bringing them to glory with Christ. And we need this verse because it reminds us of God's vision and plan for those that he saves. He's taking us somewhere. He doesn't just save us and say, okay, now go, you know, do whatever you want. I, I freed you from your sins. No worries. No, he's bringing us to glory. There's more in store for you. This isn't the best it gets. There's the present glory, the, the present heaven, and then the future glory, the, the future new, new earth that is to come. And what we can't overlook here in verse 10 is who's doing the bringing? Or even the fact that the word bringing is here that he's bringing us to glory. We can't work our way there. You can't scratch and claw your way to glory. You can't do enough good things to get yourself to heaven. We can't find the way there. We can't talk our way there. We can only be brought there. And It reminds me last year when my wife and I were going to a Rockets game a uh, basketball game, professional basketball game. And we had decent seats, but because we had, were going to be part of some charity event, ended up getting canceled. And so they kind of offered us seats to another game. Say, would you like to go to this game too? They said, oh, we can't. We're out of town. But you want to just give me courtside seats instead for this game I'm already going to? They said, well, we can't do that. I was like, okay, well, you want to give me a tour of the locker room and an autographed ball by James Harden? You want to give me that? No, we can't really do that either. He's like, well, how about this? How about we let you be seat fillers for this game that's going to be on national TV, where we'll upgrade your seats, you just get, we'll give you red wristbands, and you just ha- you get to sit four rows behind the bench. Is that okay? That'll work. And so we go. I have to meet the guy before the game. He takes us through security, and they check his badge. He's, they know who he is. Mike he's a Rockets employee, but they still check. And then they, they bring us down further, further, further. We get on the court. And they're like, "Whoa, are you supposed to be here?" And he's like, "Hey, they're they're with me. They're gonna be sitting in this section, you know, behind the bench for TV." Okay, they let us through. We go on the court, and they tell us to stop. I'm like, why? They change his, change their minds. And well, the players are coming out. These giant men are walking past us as they just wait. Don't get in their way. And then, okay, they go. They take us to our seats. And Mike says, hey, uh, they're here. They got the red wristbands. Uh, take good care of them uh, if anything happens. You know, so we were just sitting in seats that no one showed up in. So he's like, hey, if someone shows up, just scoot down or just move somewhere else. But you, you can stay here the whole game if you want. I'm like, all right, awesome. And what I noticed about that, there's no way I could do that, like, the next game I ever went to. I've already said, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a seat filler today. I have no right to go do that. Someone had to bring us down there. it would have never have happened. Church, to get to glory, you have to be brought there. You have to be ushered there by Christ himself. Christianity really is a religion of riding someone else's coattails. And it's that of a Jewish carpenter raised from the dead. And he's the founder of our salvation. Look what verse 10 calls him. Jesus has a lot of nicknames, and this is one of them, the founder of their salvation. No one else could secure our salvation. No one else gets to be called the founder of you being saved and you being forgiven and you being made new and you being raised from the dead at at Gabriel's trumpet. And what I love about Jesus being called the founder of salvation, of their salvation, notice the Bible doesn't call him the founder of some other religion. He's not just the founder of Christianity. He's not just the founder of some religious system. He is the founder of salvation. Our our categories for Jesus must keep getting bigger and and wider and taller and stronger. Every step further, we go into the book of Hebrews because we need to see Jesus in all of his magnificence and in all of his wonder. I mean, we we know what a founder is. We're grateful for founders. I mean, Most of us, if we were Christians, we're we're grateful for the founder of Chick-fil-A. I'm grateful for Dr. James Naismith, the, the guy who invented basketball. I love these things. But the founder of our salvation, the founder of our sins being forgiven, the founder of us getting new life, the founder of us getting to live on the new earth forever as co-heirs with Christ. How wonderful is Christ, our founder. And then if you love your salvation, if you love what Jesus has done for you, you will love the founder of your salvation. And he gets all the glory and all the honor and all the praise because him founding our salvation, this didn't happen in some business boardroom negotiation. It happened through suffering. Look at verse 10. And he would make the founder of their salvation. Perfect, look at how this happens, through suffering. What Jesus accomplished on the cross founded our salvation. Him dying in our place and every lash across his back and every drop of blood from that crown of thorns, every punch in the face while he was in trial and those nails ripping through his flesh, he was founding, establishing, securing, and cementing our salvation. And when it says that he was made perfect, I don't want you to get hung up on that. Like, Does that mean Jesus was imperfect? That's not the way that word, the meaning of that word. It doesn't mean he was lacking something, that that he was bad, so he had to be made perfect. This word means complete, whole. So for him to be the complete, the, the perfect savior, for him to be the perfect, complete, whole, final founder of our salvation, for him to be, though, the one who would save us from our sins, he had to suffer. And it was capped with his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. It's the only way he could be the founder of our salvation. And he achieved it through his suffering. That's what he did for us in the past. And so what does he do for us today? Look at verse 11. Look at this present ministry of Christ. For he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified, that's us. We all have one source. Your, your other translation may say one father. So, so who's the one that sanctifies? It's Jesus. Who are those who are being sanctified? It's Christ's people. So let's just think about this for a second. So who, does the, who changes us? Who, who makes us grow in Christ? Us? Do we make it happen? Do we play a part? We do play a part. We confess sins. We repent. But who, who's the one who does the sanctifying? Christ. Who brings us to glory? God the Father. Who's the founder of our salvation? Our founder of our salvation? God the Son. What do we do? Don't we get some credit here? Don't we get a verse? Can we get some love in the passage? All glory and honor and praise goes to him. We bring our sin, and he brings his grace. We bring how messed up we are, and he brings how glorious he is. I love this next part. I hope this next verse, I hope it will be unerasable from your heart and mind when you sin. Unerasable when you mess up. That this, this verse will be so engraved on your mind. The end of verse 11. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Do you hear what the Bible just said? Christ, when he looks at you, He is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. This is amazing to me. Because we are often ashamed of ourselves, aren't we? We're often ashamed of the things we've said and the things we've done and the decisions we've made. But Jesus looks at us and he says, I'm not ashamed to call you my family. I'm not ashamed to be called your brother. I'm not ashamed to call you my brother. I'm not ashamed to call you my sister. Beloved, Jesus isn't embarrassed by you. We got to feel this. This is the goodness of the gospel. He doesn't roll his eyes at you. When he thinks of you, he doesn't go, oh, brother. I wish that guy, I mean, he just doesn't get it. McFly, come on. I mean, he doesn't hold his nose as he brings us to glory. He's not embarrassed by us. With all of our sins, with all of our failures with all of our warts with all the plans we had that failed and didn't work out all even just like our weird personality quirks our strange habits Jesus stands before the population of heaven he stands before the entire universe and says i am not ashamed to say this is my family i'm not ashamed to say these are my brothers and sisters He is glad to call you family. I mean, we we know Jesus loves us. I mean, the Bible says he loves us. He died for us. Of course he loves us. But we often wonder, but does he like me? I mean, does he just tolerate me? This verse says he loves you and he enjoys you. He's not put off by you. He's not embarrassed by you. And this is so evident in the gospels. Jesus was not ashamed of these guys, his disciples. He loved them. So when you think, does God really love me? Does He just No, he's not ashamed of me. Now, this doesn't mean he approves of everything we do. You can't hear this and go, he's not ashamed of me? Awesome, this means I can sin, I can do whatever I want. And he's going to be like, everything's good, buddy. No, that's still not true. Because we're going to see later how he helps us when we're tempted. So he doesn't want us to give into temptation. He doesn't want us to give into sin. He doesn't approve of our sins. He hates our sin and demands that we repent of it, and that we turn and honor him and follow him. But what we got to see about Jesus is that he is able to lovingly disapprove of our actions and our sins and still have a radical love for us and still be unashamed of us, his sheep, his people, his brothers and sisters, because he, our Savior, he knows what it's like to be a human. Look at verse 14. He knows what it's like. Verse 14 proves this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, since we have human bodies, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on a human body. We have to remember, this is what we celebrate every Christmas, that Jesus, the eternal son of God, really did become a human. He didn't have a human body before. He didn't have a cerebral cortex and blood vessels and all these things. But in the incarnation, at Christmas, this is what we remember. The infleshing, the God putting on flesh. And in the word incarnation, we always hear it at Christmas. It's a big, fancy kind of theological word, but it's simple to understand. Uh, really the wor- root word of it, carnation. Not the flower, but really more in the middle. Carne. We're all in Texas. You've probably heard the word carne before. Carne asada, meat. Chili con carne, chili with meat. The incarnation, this verse is teaching us Dios con carne, God with meat. God putting meat on, share in flesh, meat, blood. So the eternal creator, the all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing son of God placed himself, was placed by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. So this so is the one who set up how we enter the world. He reduced himself to an embryo, the eternal God, squeezed down into something that we can't even see with the naked human eye. And born in an unimpressive place, he took on hair follicles, nerve endings, and he lived a complete... Human experience, human life. He's a real human man. So we forget about what are all the things that Jesus would have experienced as a human and what this means for us. That he would have needed his diaper changed. He wasn't like some magical baby that never had smelly diapers. He was a toddler. He would have learned, like our toddlers do, that, oh, my father's carpenter hammer is pretty heavy when it, and hurts when it falls on my feet. He wasn't like some super toddler. Oh, let me get that for you, Joe, and like take it over to him. He was a normal human baby. He would have gone through teenage years. His voice would have changed. He would have worked with his dad. He would have played with his siblings. Jesus lived a real human life because he is a real human. And he did it all without sin. Because he isn't just any human. He is the God man, (laughs) the only one who can destroy sin, Satan, and death exactly what he came to do. Look at verse 14. He partook of the same things. Why? That through death, he took on a body so that he could die. He took on nerve endings so they could be, so that he could feel the nails ripping through his skin. He took on blood vessels so they could be ripped open and his blood pour out. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He came to destroy the devil. He came to destroy the bully that picks on the human race. And he didn't just come and tell Satan to back off, leave him alone, no, they're with me. He came to destroy him. The gospel is the full measure of God's power against death and against Satan and against sin. And it's God's power to destroy and God's power to resurrect Jesus destroying death, it doesn't mean that we won't die. And now means that we don't have to fear death. That death doesn't have the final say. Because one day, there will not be enough nails in lows to keep you in your coffin. That you will rise from the dead. Because Christ conquered death for us. Look at verse 15. So he came, took on flesh and blood. What? To deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we feared death. And Jesus says, I have come to set you free from the fear of death. If you're a Christian, we should never fear it. Because we've been delivered from the fear of death. We were in lifelong slavery to it, but no, we've been delivered. If we know Christ. And listen, if we know Christ, the one who rose again from the dead, and we fear death, this is, this is really almost like you fearing a uh, late fee from Blockbuster today. If you got something in the mail, like, oh, you gotta pay your dollar late fee to Blockbuster, you're like, okay, you throw it in the trash. No no threat to you. It means nothing. And so death now is really, this is not really any meaningful threat to me anymore. Because I know where we're headed with Christ. And, And so maybe... Maybe you don't know Christ, and you're thinking about death. You're like, man, that still kind of freaks me out. I, I don't know about death. Well, what is it about it that you fear? The uncertainty? What, what is there? Is it just darkness? Will I go to heaven? Will I go to hell? Is it just nothingness? Will it be painful? I mean, I think all the things I'm going to miss out on. But listen, Jesus has comforts and answers for all of those fears. If you look to Jesus, if you know Jesus, you don't fear what comes after death because you know he's bringing many sons and daughters to glory with him. And he did this by his death and resurrection, and he came to help us. Look at verse 16. He wants to help you out of all of these things. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He's, remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians who are tempted to go back to Judaism. He's telling them, no, don't go back. Jesus came to help you. Angels can't help you. He didn't come to help angels. He came to help you. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect. He's a full human. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So in Judaism, they had the high priest. And this is the like most famous religious figure in Judaism where he went every year and he made this giant sacrifice for the sins of the people, representing the whole nation, just going before God and kind of saying, Lord, here's, here's the sacrifice. Will you forgive all of their sins this year? Um, and will, I'm going to come again next year, but forgive them. Every year this had to happen. But he's saying, now Jesus became the high priest and he did this once for all where he went on our behalf and he didn't enter into some temple He entered into the cross. He entered into, he brought his body. He brought his blood, not the blood of some bulls or or some lambs or some goats, but he brought the blood of the lamb of God. And he made propitiation. This word just means payment. He made the payment for sins. He died in our place. He put our sins on himself and, and he made the payment that we could have made. We... You can make the payment for your sins, but it will take you for all of eternity to pay them off under the wrath of God. Or we go to Christ, who he makes the payment once for all. And he rose again from the dead, showing that he's been vindicated, that he is the eternal son of God, that we have been forgiven. And look at what we learn about Jesus, who he is for us right now. Verse 17, a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus is merciful and faithful towards you right now. This is something we, we struggle with about Jesus. We see him in the Gospels and see how great he is, and we, but we wonder how he is in heaven. He's the same. In the Gospels, what do we see? We see he's merciful to his disciples that he called. It's so striking that at no point in the Gospels does Jesus look at his 12 and go, man, you guys are not what I thought you were. Why don't you all go back to fishing? I'm going to get a new group of guys. You guys stink. He never does that. Because he's merciful. Even when Jesus is walking on the street and there's two blind men yelling out to him, and they're saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. And he stops and he goes over to him. What do you want me to do for you? We'd like to see. It's done. He's merciful. He's merciful to the sick, healing whole towns. The only thing that really stopped him in the gospels was often time. Because he was a man. He got tired. Sun went down, it's time to go. He was merciful to the whole crowds when he's teaching and there's just 5000 men, a lot of people estimate 20,000 people probably there listening somehow to this amazing display that Christ is giving and the disciples say, "Hey, send them away. We don't have any food. Tell them to go." But merciful Jesus steps in and says, "Well, what do we have? We got a little boy's lunch. We can feed him. Tell everybody to sit down. I'll take care of it." He's merciful and he's faithful. When a Roman soldier came up to him and said, my daughter's sick, she's probably going to die. Would you heal her? She's miles away. Jesus says, it's done. And it was done. Because he's faithful. What he says happens. What he promises happens. He never turned his back on the Father. He never turned his back on his disciples when they turned their backs on him. He's not flaky in church. Jesus hasn't changed. His heart from heaven is the same towards you that we see in the Gospels, undiminished. The same merciful heart we see in the Bible is the same mercy he has towards us. That same faithful love that he has towards Peter as the same faithful love he has towards you and me. Do you believe this about Jesus Christ? Do you see him as merciful and faithful towards you? Don't doubt his mercy towards your sins. You know you doubt his mercy towards your sins if when you sin, you hide it instead of running to the God of mercy because you don't think he's going to show you mercy. You know you doubt his mercy if if you run away from Jesus instead of going to Jesus. Don't doubt his mercy towards your sins. He's merciful. He's got plenty of it. And don't doubt his faithfulness towards you. You know you doubt his faithfulness towards you if, when you blow it. You think, he's gotta be done with me. I mean, I just keep getting angry. I can't stop. He's he's gotta be so fed up with me. He's surely I'm gonna lose my salvation now. No, he's faithful towards you. Are you in need of mercy? Then go to him. Do you need forgiveness of your sins? Then then look to Jesus. He offers it to you. And if you're worn out, just trying to fix your life on your own, always trying to do it on your own, Jesus says, I'm here to help you. Listen. Jesus is not disinterested in us. Look at verse 18. This is incredible. Verse 18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted. So we know Jesus suffered on the cross. But here the Bible says he suffered when he was tempted. He suffered for us in many ways. And because he suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus is not ashamed of us, and Jesus is also not disinterested in us. He is interested in helping his people. He knows temptation. Sometimes we we get this view of Jesus as though he's, he's unlike us and he's kind of this other kind of figure, and he is unlike us in that he's God, but that he is like us in that he's a man and that he was tempted just like us. Hebrews says later he was tempted in every way that we are it's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to give in to temptation. And he faced temptation to degrees far greater than we do because we eventually give in to temptation. But he never gave in. So those levels of temptation ever increased, never relented, ever present. I mean, he withstood, the Gospels tell us, 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Not by some henchman, not by some junior demon, but by Satan himself for 40 days. And Jesus never gave in. And He did that for us. So that now he is able to help those who are being tempted. I love this about Jesus. That he personally offers his help to you. Personally. He is able to help those. He doesn't send some guardian angel. I, I don't know if we have guardian angels. You kind of see people talk about that. I, I really don't care if I have one or not. I do great, whatever. I have Christ. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And this sets Jesus apart from every other religious system and every kind of teacher on the planet, especially in the Greco-Roman world. Zeus didn't offer any help to those who are being tempted. Poseidon didn't offer any help. Jesus offers help. Buddha doesn't offer any help to those who are being tempted. The prophet Muhammad of Islam, he doesn't offer any help to any Muslim who's being tempted. But Jesus of Nazareth says, I am able to help those who are being tempted. He offers his help. And he just, what we've learned about Jesus from Hebrews 1 to Hebrews 2 is incredible. That Hebrews 1 is this vision of Jesus being the exact imprint of God the radiance of the glory of God and that Jesus is the one who holds the universe together by the word of his power and that Jesus is the one who's worshipped by the angels and so this same Jesus who is holding Neptune and Saturn and all going in their orbit, who, withholds, who upholds the Milky Way and nebula galaxies, this same Jesus is the same one who says, I am willing to help you in your temptation. He's not too busy upholding the universe to say, I can help you not look at that on the internet tonight. I I, I can help you not drink that again. I I can help you not say that to your spouse that you want to say. I can help you. I'm able to help those who are being tempted. So how wonderful is Christ that he is not ashamed of us and he's not disinterested in us, but he is personally invested and engaged with us, willing to help able to help. And he has to be both. If he's able but not willing, it's really of no help to us. And if he's willing but not able, it's also no help to us. But we have a Jesus who is willing and able to help those who are being tempted. Right in the throes of temptation and right in the heat of it, Jesus says, I'm here to help you. It's not too late. I can help you in your temptation. He's drawn to the helpless. And Jesus, he's not ashamed that we need help. And we shouldn't be ashamed that we need help either. Sometimes we have to act like, oh, we've got it all together and we're in accountability and be like, oh, you know, I think I'm, I don't really have any sins at all. We shouldn't be ashamed that we need help. Jesus isn't ashamed that we need help. We shouldn't be ashamed of one another that we need help. He's drawn to the helpless. There's a heresy that goes around the Bible belt that Jesus only helps those who help themselves. This is demonic. Jesus only helps those who can't help themselves. And that's who he goes to in the Gospels. The Pharisees think they've got it all together, and Jesus basically says, well, let's see how this goes at the end of the age. Because there's wheat and weeds, so we'll see. There's sheep and there's goats, so we'll see. And eventually the Pharisees say, we perceive he's talking about us. But those who are helpless, those who are lame, those who are sick, those who are great sinners, Jesus says, I've come for you. And so Jesus comes to us and says, I'm here to help you. So how do we get his help? One, stop, we have to stop relying on our own kind of machinery to overcome temptation. Kind of our own tactics and our own ways, which seem to never work. Why don't we go to the one who has proven this is how you overcome temptation? Christ himself. So how do, how do, we, how do we get Jesus' help? We look to him. Jesus, help me. Just like those blind men in the Gospels. Have mercy on us, son of David. Just their faith, their words, their prayer. And Jesus grants it. Same for us. Have mercy on me, son of David. We put our trust in him. We put our confidence in him. We put our faith in him. We we believe in him. We believe when he says sin isn't worth it that it's better to enter into eternity with one last hand than to enter into eternity with both of them in hell. We believe that we've been set free from the chains of sin. We believe that we have the power to obey because of him. We believe that we can and that he is willing and that he is able to help us. And so then we believe that living with Jesus is more satisfying than living with sin. We, this is what we do. I know sometimes we, we talk about temptation and we want strategies. Well, what, what do I do? What do we do? That's what you do. Believe in Christ. Well, I know, but I know that's true, but what else? Walk in faith. Listen, we don't go to Jesus for strategies. We go to Jesus for Jesus. We don't go to Jesus for strategies. We go to Jesus for Jesus himself. Jesus isn't some, when it says, He is able to help. It doesn't say he's able to point you in another direction. He's able to give you some Dr. Phil techniques on how to deal with your temptations. No, he is our source of help. He is our Lord. He is not our advisor. He's not a life coach. He's our Lord, our King, our God. So we look to him and then we act in faith. When you're tempted, you close that laptop and believe in faith. Christ is at work in me to overcome this temptation. When you're tempted to say that thing that you want to say, but you know you shouldn't say, you stop and, Lord, have mercy on me. Help me and believe you are energizing me to not do that. You're at work in me. For it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So life and I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You walk in faith. This is how we live with Christ because he's not ashamed to help us. He lives to help his brothers and sisters. He founded our salvation. He's growing us in sanctification, and we are headed to glory with him. And we know this about Jesus because the Bible tells us so. Jesus loves us, and Jesus helps us. This we know. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.